<clears throat> Pray with me. Father in heaven, it is our heart's desire now, now to bring glory to you by hearing, by hearing your word. And so we pray that you would cause our attention to be focused upon it, that you would take away distractions, and that through it, Father, you would bless your name by bringing to us grace and peace in great abundance. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Turn, please, to First Peter, one Peter, in chapter one. I want to read just the first two verses. First Peter, and chapter one. Hear the word of God. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. I want us uh, to take up First uh, Peter. I don't have any reason for that, particularly, except that it came to mind. I read it. It resonated with my soul. So here we go. We can't go too far afield since, after all, it is in the Bible. So we'll be fine as we work our way, as we work our way through this. But the question then is, what should we expect? What do we expect when we begin to undertake something like this? First Peter, uh, there are five chapters. I don't know how long that will take us. But, but, but uh, w- what really should we expect when we undertake that? And what, I, what I'm expecting each week and then as the cumulative effect of all of this is grace and peace. And the reason that I expect that is because that seems to be Peter's intention. As he tells us here, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. And that's pretty amazing as he's talking to this particular group of people because this is a group of people who are scattered, we'll come to what that means in a minute, but scattered throughout uh, what we would call modern-day Turkey. I don't know if you know where that is any more than you know where Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia is. But, um, but there, and so they're scattered there, and they're finding themselves... Uh, in a measure of suffering. Notice in chapter 1 and verse uh, 6, he says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So there's difficulties in the context of their lives. It could be uh, very minor sorts of difficulties, the kinds of difficulties that you and I might experience on a given day, just aggravations and so forth and so on. It could be in the sense of, of disease and illness. It could be in the sense of poverty. It could be in the sense, as we'll see, suffering for the sake of Christ, suffering injustice, suffering ridicule because they belong to Jesus. Now, it's likely that Peter writes this from Rome, And it's also likely it's written somewhat before, not a great deal before, but somewhat before uh, the great persecution on the church that comes at the hand of Nero. This is beginning, but it's probably a touch before. And so it's anticipation of all of this, whether Peter knew that this was going to happen and began to broadcast it and how Christians were to respond in this situation, or whether it's providential as it comes out just to be a blessing to people who might undergo this kind of persecution, we don't really know. But we do know they're going through these various trials. If you look uh, in chapter 2, 
In verse 15, he writes, For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So obviously, there were foolish people, at least in the mind of Peter, foolish people who were ridiculing these Christians, and they were doing so out of ignorance. They didn't understand the truth. And so they were ridiculing, in some sense, uh, uh, Christians, and perhaps even more. Verse 18 uh, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. So there were unjust masters in this place. Uh, for this is a gracious thing, he goes on to say, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. And so he's saying to this particular group of people, what you need is grace and peace in abundance, multiplied. Uh, to you. Chapter 3, verse 1, he speaks to, to wives particularly who are married to unbelieving husbands who don't seem to want to hear the word, and so he's talking to them. But that's a difficult situation uh, for them to be in. In chapter 3, and verse 13, he says, Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts regard Christ as Lord, and so forth. Uh, he's saying to them, Verse 17 again, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And so you get the sense that even in righteousness, even in doing good, there, there's a measure of suffering that's coming their way. And then chapter 4 and verse 12, he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. He said, this is not unusual for Christians to undergo uh, fiery trials difficulties that try and test your faith as fire might try and test metal. But then he goes on to say, but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. For if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or evildoer or as a meddler. And so he's saying, listen, there's suffering in the midst of this, and what he's going to bring to them, what he's going to tell them, so that it brings to them, is grace and peace. Now, we think of grace, we think of the gift that God gives to us, his, his unmerited, we say, favor, his blessing that comes even though we don't deserve it. And we think of grace generally, initially, as coming to faith in Christ, that grace that brings us to faith. We're saved by uh, grace through faith, and this not of ourselves, it's the gift of God. And so we, we think of that in the context of our, of our coming to faith. We've received grace. But we have to understand, but this very same grace that saves us continues to be towards us, to strengthen us, and enable us to maintain faith and to persevere. For instance, in 1 Corinthians in chapter 15, uh, Paul writes this about his own life. Chapter 15, verse 10, he says, But by the grace of God, I am what I am. So he's saying, my whole life is because of God's grace to me. And his grace toward me was not in vain. That is, the grace that he initially gave to me, the grace he continues to give me. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. He says, this grace came to bring salvation to me, but in so doing, transformed me and continues to come to me to enable me to accomplish, to do the work 
that God has called me to do. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10, Paul says that we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do the good works to which he's prepared in advance for us to do. And so we need grace, the very favor of God, the blessing of God to strengthen us, to help us to do that which he's called us to do. And they would need that. They would need that in the midst of various trials. They would need that in the midst of the suffering in which they're undergoing the ridicule and insult and worse. And who knows what was coming to them in in months and a year or two ahead. And so he says, you need this grace. And so I'm going to give you, this is my intention of this letter, that through it you will receive grace and peace. And so when we think of peace, we think of the absence of hostility. And when grace comes to bring peace with God, the hostility between us and God is gone. That very grace that saves us ends the hostility, the enmity, the scripture says it, the hostility, the opposition between us and God. It takes care of his wrath against us. It takes care of our rebellion against him so that we come together and are reconciled. Paul writes in Romans 5, now that you have been justified by faith, you have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The peace with God. But also we'll see that there is a peace that will come with each other. Because you see, our peace with God came at our salvation. Probably all these or most of these who are reading this letter already have come to faith. But through this letter, Paul expects that their peace with God will be affirmed. It will be strengthened. They'll be more assured that they have peace with God in the midst of their suffering than ever before. Their assurance would increase, so we should expect that. Not only peace with God to come, but but our assurance that we have peace with Him. That what we're going through isn't because we don't have peace with Him. That what we're going through is actually because we already have peace with him and going through it will increase our assurance. We should expect that when we're done with this. But not only that, but peace with each other. Chapter 3, verse 8, he says, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. That is, he wants us also to come together, peace with each other. But what will not happen is that there will be an absence of hostility with the world. That will continue till Jesus comes. But he will put us at peace even with that. He will give us peace to enable us even to embrace the hostility of the world and to live in it triumphantly. That's what I expect. I expect week by week as we go through this, to receive grace and peace, to receive the strength that we need to deal with everything that comes our way, all the various trials, even to the point of suffering for the sake of Christ. And I expect that he will give us peace. He'll give us a greater assurance of of, of our peace with him, that in the midst of this, rather than destroying our faith, it will actually affirm it and prove it. And we'll leave saying, yes, I belong to God even as we face all kinds of trials, all kinds of difficulties. And I think it'll draw us together, that we'll have peace with each other. And I think it'll even cause us to have peace with the life that we live, even though we're weird, and even though we're different, and even though we stand out, and even though we're ridiculed, and even though we're persecuted. I think we'll be able to say, no, this is life. This is life. This is the way that it is. It's not going to be different until Jesus comes. And that we'll have peace even 
with the life to which he's called us. Now that's outlandish. So where does this confidence to even say something like that come? Well, it comes from this first line. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. You see, the one that we're going to be listening to isn't just a regular old guy. He's an apostle of Jesus Christ. He's not the apostle of Jesus Christ. He's not the representative of Jesus Christ on the earth. But he's an apostle of Jesus Christ, one of them. And as an apostle of Jesus Christ, then he carries with him the same authority as the prophets of old to be able to speak and write the very word of God. The Apostle Paul writes to us in Ephesians chapter 2 and he says that the household of God, that is the church, is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Now why does he say that? He says that because that foundation of the church is the very word of God. The prophets were told to write and to speak the truth of God. The apostles, though generically that word simply means messenger or one sent out, it came to be a technical term really for those who were especially appointed by God, who had seen the risen Christ, that includes the Apostle Paul, for instance, because he got a little special viewing, who had seen the resurrected Christ and had been commissioned by him, called by him to go out, to be sent out, and to speak on his behalf, and to write the very word of God which we have. And they knew they were doing this. They knew they were writing the word of God. If Peter walked in today and he saw us reading the scripture and we were listening to it and hearing it as if it were from God, he would say that's exactly the right thing to do. If Paul walked in today and we were reading one of his letters and we were thinking about it and reading it and listening to it as if it were exactly the word of God, Paul would say that's exactly the way to handle it. For instance, Paul in Galatians, in chapter 1, writes to the church in Galatia, verse 8, and he says, but even... If we, are, if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Paul knew that he had the truth. He knew he had the right gospel. And he says, if anybody's taking a different truth, then you'll be condemned. He knew. And it wasn't an arrogant thing. It wasn't a prideful thing. He knew he received it by grace, and he knew he received it by revelation, and he knew that then he was to give it to the church. But he said, this is the truth, you must receive it. For instance, in 1 Thessalonians, and chapter 1, I'm sorry, in chapter 2, in verse 13, the apostle, or chapter 2, verse 13, the apostle Paul writes, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. He said, listen, I know, Paul would say, what I'm speaking to you, what I would write to you, is the very word of God, and that's how you must take it. In fact, Peter would affirm that in Second Peter in chapter 3. In verse 1, he writes, This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved, in both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Saying, this is the word of God. It's on par with the same authority as the ancient prophets. 
because we're speaking, we're writing the very word of God. So when Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, writes, may grace and peace be multiplied to you, then I expect that. Because I expect that this will come from the very Word of God. That's why we say that the Bible, the Word of God, is a means of grace to us. When we read it and meditate upon it and believe it, it brings grace to us. The very strength that God provides that we might follow Him. And it brings to us peace. Assures us that we have peace with Him and each other. And even in the context of the hostility of the world, even in the context of our circumstances. Because notice how he addresses this particular group of people. He says to them, in the middle of verse 1, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. Now, if you have a different version, I'm reading out of the English Standard Version, which is rather literal, which is why I like it, especially for that particular expression, because you'll miss something if you don't see it that way, but I'll get to that. But if you have an NIV, it says, to God's elect, strangers in the world scattered. If you have a New American Standard, it says, uh, to those who uh, reside as aliens, scattered. They've taken this word dispersion, the dispersion, to simply mean scattered, which it does. But here's what you'll miss if you just think of it as scattered. The little word dispersion was a technical term. In the days of Jesus, especially. And it was a, a reference to the Israelites who had been dispersed during the exile and not returned to Israel. Remember when we uh, were with our good friend Ezekiel? I kind of miss him. I visit him still from time to time, but I kind of miss him. But when we were walking our way through Ezekiel, uh, he was in exile. And you remember the promise would be that, that at least a remnant, some of those exiles would return to Jerusalem. Well, some of them did, but not all of them. And so over history, throughout history, in the four or five hundred years uh, of that exile to the time of Christ, uh, these Israelites had families and grew up and raised their, their families in the midst of Gentile territories. And they became known as the dispersion, the dispersed ones, the scattered ones. And so now Peter is, 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 is sort of adopting that term. He's grabbing that term. And he's now saying, I'm going to write to you who are, you are dispersed. And he's not just simply writing to, to Jewish Christians, because as we read through this letter, what we do find is that he's talking to a whole group of people, a group of people who are being, who are being built together as temples, a, a brotherhood, a, a people, a holy nation, all those things. So he's not just singling out one sort of ethnic group in the church, Jewish Christians, but he's using that word to say that I recognize that you're the people of God and you're out there. You're not right here where I am, but you're out there. You're spread out all over the place. You're dispersed. You're scattered. One of the things that I, I like to do when I'm uh, flying, well, not flying, flying, but when I'm in an airplane, when I'm in an airplane, and uh, when you grew up in the 60s and 70s, you have to qualify everything <laughs> in relationship to that. When I'm in an airplane and we're landing, we're coming in, and it's at night, and you look out, you see lights and darkness. It's street lights, car lights, building lights, house lights, all kinds of things. Closer. You, see, you see lights, and I, I, it reminds me of something. It reminds me that, that, that there are Christians all over the place. Not every one of those lights is a Christian light, obviously. But I think from God's perspective, when he looks upon the earth, he sees lightness and dark. 
and he sees Christians, and he's got us scattered all over the place. And so what Peter's doing is he's writing to all those lights in Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia, all this, this area. He's writing to them. He's saying, because you're, you're out there, you're dispersed, but you're really one people. You're one people of God. It's as if he connects the dots of all these, these people. And he sends Silvanus, as we'll see in chapter 5, uh, around with this letter. And, and, and probably the way he's listed them from Pontus on down through Galatia, Cappadocia, back through Galatia, over to Asia, and back up home to Pontus. That, 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 that that's the, could be the route that uh, this letter took to cover all those churches, all those believers in those areas. And he says to them, here's how you must think of yourselves as exiles or strangers or aliens. And it isn't strangers in the sense that that they're completely unaware of their culture. They grew up in it. It isn't that they're aliens in the sense that, 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 that they're forced to be there. It isn't like they're exiles in the sense that they had been driven out of their homes into this place. This is, from an earthly perspective, this is their homes. This is probably where they grew up. They knew everything about that culture. He wasn't speaking sociologically or politically. He was speaking in the context of their spiritual lives. And he's saying, listen, you know that living here is where you don't belong. This isn't right. Things are different in your heart than what is out there in the context of of your life. It's as if when Jesus was praying, you remember in John chapter 17, in his high priestly prayer in in verse uh, 15, he says to his father about Christians, really, he says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am, am not of the world. Jesus had come from glory to the world, and he was God with us, But there's a sense in which heaven was his home and the presence of God was his home. And he's saying to your exiles, your aliens, that you belong in the presence of God and you know that. That's where you really, really belong. In fact, you know it because of the way you're being treated first and foremost. That you're misunderstood, that you're ridiculed, that people are even causing you suffering for righteousness' sake. That is, your life of righteousness is causing them to come against you. Jesus, again, made us very aware that that would be the case. For instance, on the night that he was betrayed before the crucifixion, uh, he said this, John chapter 15, verse 18, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, that is, if this were really your home, if you embraced all that's here, If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will will also keep yours. But all these things they will do on account of my name because they don't know him who sent me. He said, listen, you're aliens. You're, 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 You're exiles here. This isn't home. First and foremost, it won't feel quite right. Because you look around and you see things that that shouldn't really be. For you see injustice and you see poverty. You see people hating each other. You see relationships that aren't right. You see disease. You see death. And you think, no, no, no. Jesus came to redeem us from all that. This isn't quite the way it's to be. 
and then they come against you. This is the way it's, it's, it's always been for God's people. Even Abraham, for instance, in Hebrews in chapter 11, verse 8, it talks about the life of Abraham. It says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. So you get the picture. God calls Abraham and says, Now go to your inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise as, a, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has its foundations whose designer and builder is God. That's what he was looking for. And anywhere else till he found that wasn't home. It was different. It didn't go by the same rules that the that, 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 that kingdom of God would go by. It didn't have the same values and culture that the kingdom of God. It didn't speak the same language of the truth of God that he knew he would find when he found the city whose foundations and, and designer and builder was God. And then verse 13 of that same passage, these all died, that is all that he had mentioned, and we missed some. These all died, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. He knew it. He said, this isn't, this is close, but this isn't where God has ultimately called me to be, because even Abraham knew that the land on the earth in which he settled wasn't really home yet, because he had eternity in his heart. He had a vision of what was to come, and he said, no, I'm after the city whose designer and builder is God, and it ain't home till I'm there. Verse 14, for people who who speak thus, make it clear that they're seeking a homeland. If they'd been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have opportunity to return But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. And you see Peter saying the very same thing to these dispersed ones. He's saying, you're exiles. This isn't home, and you know it. But now I'm going to tell you how you're to live in the midst of this. And as I'm telling you how to live in the midst of this, you're going to receive the grace and strength you need to live And the peace that no one on this world will understand. Because your assurance that you're right and your assurance that you belong to God will increase. And you'll come together as a group of people in peace, not only with God, but with with each other. And you won't fret over these circumstances in which you're facing. You'll even have peace in the midst of these circumstances of difficulty. And you'll even be able to embrace this life to which I call you. Now, how is he going to do that? Well, by giving them instructions. But before we get to that, he lays the foundation. Before these instructions on how they're to live make any sense at all, he has to tell them something. And what he's going to tell them is who they are from God's perspective. How God understands them. How God sees them. How all this has come about. And he begins by modifying the word exile with the word elect. Now, please forgive me for being a Presbyterian. But, but this word pops up in the scripture all the time. Not to be confusing, not to be offensive, not to be controversial, but to be helpful. And here's Peter writing to a group of suffering people. And what he wants to tell them is make sure you understand, if you're going to receive grace and peace, who you are. Make sure that you're one of these that we call the elect of God. The one God has, ones that God has chosen out of the world. 
Just like Jesus said. Let me go back quickly. I need to turn to this. I'll find it faster. In John chapter 15, Jesus says this. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but you are but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. This was God's initiative, God's work to make us his own. If he hadn't told us this, we wouldn't know it. If he hadn't told us that this was his intention, his plan, his initiative, his work, we wouldn't know it. We'd think it was ours. We would think we were the ones to have come to faith. And so at a minimum, it makes us humble to think about this. Because if we didn't know that it was God's initiative, God's plan, God's purpose, God's work, then we would think, I would think, I must be somewhat better than all those people who don't believe. Because I do believe, and that's good and right. And so it answers for me the question when I find out that I'm really elect of God, that he chose me to be his. It solves one mystery. It answers for me the question is, why don't all believe? I wouldn't know that otherwise. I'd be confused about that one. Because I'd look at myself and think, well, there probably isn't any difference between me and everybody else, so why do I believe and they don't? And now I get, I, I get the answer on this is that, well, it's because of a work of God. Now, it doesn't solve every mystery for me. For instance, I wonder, how is it that God can be sovereign over all things and elect some to salvation, but yet hold us all responsible? I don't know. It's a God thing. And I leave that with him. Romans 9 says, essentially, don't ask that question. Paul raises that very question. He says, well, is God, is God unjust? Can we resist his will? And Paul says, remember, you're the clay, not the potter. And I think, okay, Paul, but, but answer the question for me. And he doesn't. See, we need to leave mystery where the Bible leaves mystery. And we need to get answers where the Bible gives answers. And we need to be content with that. And so we need to grab a hold of the truth, which is we're elect. And we need to be comforted by it. And we need to receive grace from it. And we need to receive peace by it. Because Paul uses this little word elect here to modify exiles. We're the chosen of God. And we're chosen exiles. And what does that mean? It means that our alienness, our exileness, is because of God. That he's the one, because of his calling us out of the world, he's the one who makes us weird. He's the one who makes us different than everybody else. He's the one that makes us feel like we don't belong here in this world. He's the one that, that causes our ideas and our lives to be different than that of the world. He says, he says you know, don't, 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 don't fret about this. This was my plan before the foundation of the world, to call you to be mine, and in calling you to be mine, you would end up being exiles in the world. I would call you out of the world, but leave you there. I would choose you to be mine out of the world, but leave you in the midst of it. And you would find yourself different. That's God's doing, not ours. He did it. We shouldn't be surprised, therefore, when it's true. And it is true. We realize in the point of our lives now that it, be, it seems to be coming 
truer and truer, more pronounced and more pronounced, almost on a daily basis. As we think about the kinds of things in our own country coming under attack, marriage, for instance, we look very weird in the context of our culture right now because we really do believe that marriage is to be between a man and a woman, a union between a man and a woman. And we don't get that by tradition. And we don't even get that by nature. We get that because God said that's the way it's to be. Now, if you ever want to be ridiculed in the midst of an argument about marriage, say, well, this is how God defined it in Genesis chapter 2, that a man should leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two should become one flesh. Therefore, that ends the debate. They look at, at us like we're really, really weird. In fact, Peter's people, the people to whom Peter was writing, had this problem. If you look in, in chapter 2 and verse 12, Peter writes, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. You see, they viewed the Christians scattered as evildoers because they went against conventional wisdom. And it has been in the news on a number of occasions in these days where people who stand up and say no marriage is to be a union between a man and a woman, that those people are called evildoers. Intolerant, unsympathetic, uncaring, immoral. Same thing. And so the question for Peter is, well, how, how can you stand in the midst of that? You need grace and peace multiplied to you to stand in the midst of that. And it goes on and on. That's just a real easy example right now to pick out. But even our whole understanding of, of marriage and divorce. And when there are difficult marriages in the Christian community, we say, hang together. Stay together. It's God's will for you to stay together. Don't part ways. Don't divorce. And, and yet, it, in our culture, that's ludicrous. The way we raise our children. Ludicrous to the world, the kinds of things that we watch on TV and don't watch on TV, the kinds of things we expose our eyes to and we don't expose our eyes to. It's ludicrous to the world. They think we're crazy. They ridicule us for those kinds of things, the way we spend our money, the way we give our money. It's amazing to people to think that there are Christians with relatively modest incomes who give away what the world considers to be a very large proportion of it. They just don't get it. At all, because they don't understand our hearts. They don't understand our treasures. What's really, really valuable and important to us. We could go on and on about how different we are and the magnitude of those differences. And so what Peter's trying to say is understand that this is the way God has designed it. He chose you out of the world to be his. And in choosing you out of the world to be his, you automatically became an exile. You automatically became an alien. You automatically became a stranger. That's simply who you are. And if you don't find yourself to be that, be worried. But as you find yourself increasingly to be that, don't fret. Rejoice. That's affirming who you are as his. That should bring you peace. He goes on, because this election, this being elect exiles, 
the basis for it, the foundation for it, it begins in chapter 2, is according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. That is, it's because of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This being elect exiles is God's deal, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he begins by saying it's according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, when he speaks of foreknowledge, he doesn't mean simply that God knows in advance what's going to happen. That's no feather in God's cap. I sort of just, you know, God should know that. In fact, when the little word know is used in the scripture, it's generally used to denote a particular interest that one has in the one who is known even to the degree of a particular intimacy, a particular love. For example, in Genesis chapter 4, the scripture says that Adam knew his wife Eve. Wink, wink. Next line. And she bore a son. All right? This knowing is a particular interest, an intimacy, a particular expression of love. This knowing brings action, an action of love. When Jeremiah writes, and God speaks to him of his own being called as a prophet, God reminds Jeremiah that I knew you before you were born. And I consecrated you. And I called you, I appointed you to be a prophet. Knowing Jeremiah meant more than he just knew the existence of Jeremiah in the womb. It means that he knew him. He had a particular interest in him. And he cared for him and he called him. When people came to Jesus and said, Jesus, we've done all these things in your name. But Jesus said, oh, but I never knew you. He wasn't saying, I I, I don't know of your existence. No, he knows everything. You give Jesus a multiple choice test on everything and he gets it all right. All the way down to every single human being and every single breath and every hair and everybody's head and all that. But this knowing of them meant, no, no, I don't have a particular interest there. So, to foreknow isn't simply to know something about someone, but simply to know them before they know you. So he's saying, this election of us as exiles, to belong to God and thus out of the world, was something that the Father did according to his love that came beforehand, before we loved him, before we knew him, before we turned to him, before we cared about him, before anything in us. That's why there's that very, very odd phrase in the scripture, Romans 9, in one occasion, where Paul writes about God that he loved Jacob and hated Esau even before they were born. And that's mysterious to us, but that's the point. He's saying before you did anything, Before anything was true in your existence, God knew you. That's why Paul would write that we've been chosen in Christ before the creation, before the foundation of the world. Mysterious. But Peter says, I want you to understand that and grab a hold of that. That your present circumstances isn't arbitrary. Your present circumstances isn't random. Your present circumstances because of God who is your Father. 
So this difficulty that you're experiencing, this alienness that you're experiencing, this weirdness, this out of itness that you're experiencing, this controversy that you're experiencing, this hostility that you're experiencing on the face of the earth comes to you because God is your Father. And He loved you. And He plucked you out of the world by His initiative to save you. And you're in this spot because of Him. And you say, thanks. Yes, thanks. Because you see, the more comfortable we are in his world, and the less comfortable we are in this world, the more assured we are of our eternal life. Because the world to come isn't like this. And if we're comfortable here, we won't like that. But if we're uncomfortable here for all the right reasons, we'll love that. He goes on very quickly. I know I'm out of time, but I'm never out of time, out of time. He says, not only the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit. Now, that's a funny phrase, sanctification. But it simply means to be set apart for a particular use. If you have a pencil box, you pull out a pencil, you've sanctified it. Okay? Okay? You've pulled it out. You're going to use it as a pencil. This one, not those, but this one. You've sanctified it. You've pulled it out. And you say, okay, the Spirit of God then has sanctified that. has set us apart for holiness. For holiness. And he did that, obviously, when he came to faith, the work of the Spirit to give us a new heart. But even more than that, because the Spirit of God now is in us, enabling us to live in such a way as is pleasing to God. The Spirit of God now is in us to conform us to the image of Christ, to form Christ in us. So he says, don't worry. I know you're in a hostile environment. Well, I put you there. That's what it means to be a Christian. I've done it because I'm your loving Heavenly Father, but I've given you my Spirit who's now at work in you that's going to enable you to live and to maintain faith and to please me in the midst of all these difficulties. Not only that, he goes, here's the purpose for which I've done all this. It's for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. So this is why I've I've made you mine. This is why you feel as exiles that you're living in a hostile environment now. I've done all of that because I loved you as your father. I've given you my spirit so that you'll be able to do it. And what I've called you to do is to be obedient to Jesus in the midst of all these difficulties. To glorify him, to obey him. And I've done this for sprinkling with his blood. Should I tell you what that means? Do I have time? Yes, let me tell you. You remember a couple of weeks ago during communion, first Sunday of April, I preached that Jesus died to buy for us, to purchase for us all the benefits of the new covenant. He said, this covenant is the new covenant in my blood. And it took us back to Exodus chapter 24 and verse 8. It's a scene at at Mount Sinai where God gives the law to the people. And upon giving the law to the people, they affirm it. They say, we'll do it. And then he says, all right, kill an animal. Takes half the blood and he sprinkles it on the people. On the people. Think about that. Blood. Sprinkles it on the people. And he says, This is my covenant, which you've sworn to obey. 
Now, all of this is taking place in our lives. Being elect out of the world, making us aliens and strangers to it. It's come according to God's love for us as our Father and the work of the Holy Spirit in us so that we can obey and for the sprinkling with the blood of Christ on us. Meaning that as we live in the midst of this hostile world, by the Holy Spirit, we're confirming the covenant that God made with us in Christ. That is, we're becoming increasingly assured of our salvation. So Peter says, listen, you want to really live. Embrace your life. Embrace your life right here, right now, as aliens and strangers, knowing that it's God's work who did this, knowing it's His Spirit within you, and knowing that as you obey the Lord Jesus Christ, that you will receive assurance of your own salvation, that this covenant that He made is really real and really true in you. And I think, as we progress through First Peter, that that's going to happen. That we will receive grace and peace multiplied to us and that this is going to be great let's pray Father in heaven ready us uh, for what's to come what you have for us in the context of this particular letter in the scripture I pray in the weeks perhaps months to come as we work our way through it that you would grant to us grace and peace and that we would know that we belong to you and that you would affirm and confirm your covenant with us. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. As you do, I remind you of Sunday school classes and elders praying and so forth. Please take advantage of all that. The response to the benediction is, Jesus is Lord, hallelujah, common to us. We say that all the time. And when you say that, though, you mean, yes, he is the sovereign one. He's chosen me out of the world. His spirit fills me and enables me. And I am sprinkled with his blood, confirming the very covenant of God. Please receive this as God's benediction. Now to him who is able to keep you from falling, to present you blameless before his glorious presence, and that with great joy. To only wise God and Savior Jesus Christ, to be glory, dominion, majesty, and power, both now and forevermore. And all God's people said, Jesus is Lord. Hallelujah.